Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at a slice of American writing while giving my thought and some historical perspective. In today's episode, I will be looking at The House Behind the Cedars by Charles W. Chestnut. This is the third work by Chestnut that, I've, that I'm looking at. It's um, So I urge you to go back to listen to my episodes on The Conjure Woman and my two on the wife of his youth these are short story collections although the conjure woman is a bit more of a quasi novel the other are as a straight up short story collection this is the first full novel that i have by chestnut now this was published in 1900 now both the two short story collections i just mentioned were published in 1899 and the novel i'm going to look at next the marrow of tradition was published in 1901 so the library of america edition of Chestnut, in this podcast, I always use Library of America editions. You know, it, it's a really, it's a fairly complete window into Chestnut's writing, but the vast majority of it was written or was published between 1899 and in 1901. I don't know much about Chestnut's career outside of these works because I haven't really looked at them. But just looking at the Wikipedia, he published a biography. I don't know if the biography was a book about Frederick Douglass and also in 1899 and he published a book called the Colonel's dream in 1905. And that that's more or less his publishing career. So he was mostly doing other things with his life than just writing, but the novels he wrote, even if he wrote them in a short stretch of time are really great. I, I think he's a, a real master of with the color line and race relations. And I think he's really unique and this is what I talked about in the previous episodes on Chestnut, in that he's he's not like of the Harlem Renaissance generation. So he's writing of a generation of people, black and white, really coming to terms with the end of slavery and this burden of history, this historical burden. Later, writers were a little bit more distant from this. And you had, of course, racism in, in Jim Crow and second class status of second class citizens across the United States. And that was a real challenge, but it was a little bit more distant from from slavery. And so we get a quite a complex view of of the color line of race, of, of how whites and blacks interacted, because they're kind of coming to segregation from a society that was much more integrated. You know, the society in the slave South was, of course, very oppressive, but it was much more racially integrated. You had these interconnections and you had a lot of um complex bloodlines brought about by slavery, right? Of course, the system, systemic rape of, of African-American women during slavery, one reason for that. Um, but the, these things are a big burden for his characters. And that, that's as much true for The House Behind the Cedars as it is for the stories we've already looked at. So published in 1900, this is Chestnut's first official novel. And it's a novel pretty much about passing, although by looking at the issue of passing in the post-Civil War South, it's able to explore a lot of other issues, particularly issues about this historical burden, issues about professionalism, about law, about gender relations, 
But at the heart of it, it's a novel about race. It's also really a novel, not just about passing, but really about racial identity and this understanding who we are and how we understand who we are really in relation to other people and how we interact with them. So we have characters um, who raise in a black family, but live their lives as white people and no one ever questions them. And the reason he's not questioned ever has a lot to do with his education and the way he presents himself and the people who are around him. And I think there's also a point here just about what racism and the color line do to families. And this is something he did on a lot of his, of his stories. And, you know, it's starting even in The Conjure Woman, you have slavery breaking up families and breaking up marriages. That's not something that stopped, really, as, as we see in some of the stories he write, writes, like in um, Uncle Wellington's Wives, where this obsession over color nearly destroys a, a a decent marriage and a nice family. And here it threatens severely a family by, again, still separating children from their parents. In this case, it's a parent who, for, you know, can't pass as white, or, you know, she's a little bit darker, she doesn't have as much white blood in her, and she's known to the community to be black, and she's a pariah for other reasons as well, which I'll get at. Her children, though, are able to passes white but in doing so that requires really breaking up and shattering the family so this this theme of the breaking up of the african-american family is not something that ended with 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 the buying and selling of people in slavery it's something that that carried on so anyways um i'll look at the first half of the house behind the cedars in this episode and then and then then we can do the second half next time so the novel begins with a chapter called A Stranger from South Carolina. And we meet a man named John Warwick. I'll call him Warwick throughout here. That's the name he takes for himself. His mother's name is... What is it again? Walden. Yeah, Ms. Walden is is her is his mother's name. So I guess he'd be Mr. Walden, but he everyone refers to him as Warwick, and that's how the author refers to him. This is the identity he took when he when he left North Carolina to to live as a white person. Um, now we don't really know all this about him yet. In fact, it's not till the halfway point of the novel that we get the whole history of him, and a lot of things are alluded to in the first half of the novel and talked about uh, directly in the second half of the novel. So it's kind of like when one of the major characters realizes the truth then the narrator also starts to be more open and honest with the truth. And I think it's a really fun shift that Chestnut does here. Because, yeah, if you read if you read carefully and you know what's going on, yeah, it's about passing. But never is it mentioned, you know, that these people are black. It's, it's always just hinted at. But in the second half of the novel, after the cat's out of the bag, then everything is talked about directly as, as a racial novel. And I think that's really, really brilliantly done here by Chestnut. So anyways, John Warwick, he, he's coming to North Carolina. and he's he, So he's from South Carolina. He's come to North Carolina. And we'll talk about why you have this distinct, why he goes to South Carolina in the first place. Uh, probably in the next episode, right? or maybe I'll mention it. But it has to do with the law. Now, he's outwardly a white lawyer. Well, he I guess he is. I, I, I'm kind of, I don't know how to use the language. What's the right way to describe this? He's basically self-identifying as white for all intents and purposes. So he, he's a white lawyer of some success. I'll, I'll say it that way. Now, his mother, though, is biracial. I think she's a quadroon, to use the language of the time. 
Yeah, she was a quadroon, so her children would have been one-eighth black. Very light-skinned. Certainly, they, they're, they're able to pass as white without anyone questioning them overtly. Anyway, so he's, he's coming. But anyways, John was raised as a black child. That's, that's the point. That's the importance of his, his mother's racial identity. Now, the details here aren't revealed to later in the novel, though. But despite our character not being identified as black, we see right away that this is a novel of the South and a novel about the legacy of slavery. For instance, this is just like on the third page of the novel. Quote, he looked in vain into the stalls for the butcher who sold fresh meat twice a week on market days, and he felt a genuine thrill of pleasure when he recognizes the red bandana of turban of old Aunt Liddy, the ancient Negro woman who had sold him gingerbread and fried fish, and told him weird tales of witchcraft and conjuration in the old days when, as an idle boy, he loafed around the market house. He did not speak to her, however, or give her any sign of recognition. He threw a glance over the certain corner of the steps which led to the town hall above. On this stairwell, he had once seen a manacled free negro shot while being taken upstairs for examination under a criminal charge. Warwick recalled vividly how the shot had rung out. He could see again the livid look of terror on the victim's face, the gathering cloud, and the resulting confusion. The murderer, he recalled, had been tried and sentenced to imprisonment for life, but was pardoned by a merciful governor after serving a year of his sentence. As Warwick was neither a prophet nor son of a prophet, he could not foresee that 30 years later, even this would seem an excessive punishment for so slight a misdemeanor. So, you know, we're told by Chestnut in so many words that this is a novel about the legacy of slavery and the race, racism and the color line. Now, one of Chestnut's points in his work, all of his work, is that the Civil War did not wash away old views and old traditions and values. And yeah, those those institutions of how those views are understood is changed by the changing reality of emancipation and reconstruction. But, you know, he calls his next book the marrow of tradition. I mean, it's literally this, this is in our bones. We can't escape it. Even in this geography of the town, the old is not yet passed away. You know, you, you have the bloodstained stairwell of where a man was lynched. Warwick passes a lawyer's office and then passes, you know, because I think it's closed. So he passes by the house behind the cedars. He sees a young, light-skinned woman there who he determines must be Rena. So we learn that there's a connection between him and this house. And we get our first description of Rena, his sister, and that's this. Um, Warwick's first glance had revealed the, the fact that the young woman was strikingly handsome with a stately beauty seldom encountered. As he walked along behind her at a measured distance, he could not help noting the details that made up this pleasing impression, for his mind was singular alive to her beauty in whatever embodiment. The girl's figure, he perceived, was admirably proportioned. She was evidently at the period where the angles of childhood were rounding into the promising curves of adolescence. Her abundant hair of a dark and glossy brown was neatly plaited and coiled around an ivory column that rose straight from a pair of gently sloping shoulders, clearly outlined beneath the light muslin frock that covered them. He could see that she was tastefully, though not richly, dressed, and that she walked with an elastic step that revealed a light heart and a vigor of perfect health. End quote. Um, nothing there about her, her racial identity. Uh, as we'll see in the novel, it's really through her mother that she's racialized. And there's going to be people in the town who comment on this later on in the story. So basically, Warwick here is listening to memories of his past. The second chapter is called An Evening Visit. Warwick approaches the house secretly and at night, not wanting to be seen. The woman who answers the door calls herself Ms. Walden, 
and she does not recognize Warwick as her son until he announces himself. It's been over 10 years since he's last seen his mother. Warwick quickly gets to the point after doing all the formalities and the catching up and all that. His intention is to take Rena away from her mother and begin her life with him. And he's got a couple reasons for doing this. One reason is that he's recently lost his wife and he has a son and he wants her to help basically help raise the child. But he also thinks that it's unfair to his sister who could, could pass as a white woman to stay black when she could move to another state and live as a white woman. Although, again, nothing is stated clearly at this point in the novel. Warwick wants Rena to attempt to, lit, to pass as a white woman with him and maybe get married to a white gentleman as well. Now, we get the full backstory of Warwick later on in the story, but here we just get a little hint of it. For instance, how before the Civil War, he was raised as a free black child. He, as he grew up, he went off to become a lawyer in South Carolina. He, he lived as a white person. Quote, with the whole world before him, he had remained in the South, the land of his fathers, where he conceived that he had an inalienable birthright. By some good chance, he had escaped military service in the Confederate Army, and in default of order and more experienced men had undertaken during the rebellion the management of large estate, which had been left in the hands of women and slaves. He had filled the place so admirably and employed his leisure to such advantage that at the close of the war he found himself, he was modest enough to think too in default of a better man, the husband of the orphan daughter of the gentleman who owned the plantation and then lost his life on the battlefield, end quote. Um, so there's a couple of troubling things in Warwick's background. One is certainly he's clearly identifying as white in these stories, and there'll be evidence later on that he, he comes out and says that I'm a white man. But he also participates here in the oppression of, of black people through running a, an estate while the master's gone fighting the Yankees. Now, his mother doesn't like this at all. He doesn't want to leave his, have Rena leave. She she knows that her leaving to live with a white woman means he's never she's never going to see her again. So she resists, but finally she surrenders to the interest of her daughter's happiness. And Warwick convinces his mother to surrender Rena to him, and they prepare basically to leave the next day. So Warwick doesn't waste much time. I think he's here on a business trip, so he really can't stay long. Chapter three: The Old Judge. Warwick makes a quick visit to his old friend, the judge. When I first read this, I actually wondered if the judge was his father. Um, and you find out later that's not true, but it's the way they talk. It's, you know, I, I, I thought maybe he's his father. But no, he's just a friend that, that Warwick worked with when he was younger and helped convince him he wanted to go into law and helped him with some of the legal questions he had about passing. This is the man who actually examined the legality of passing as white. And this is why he suggested go to South Carolina, because South Carolina had more black people. So the color line was, again, I guess, more mixed there. And so the law on who's white and who's black was a little bit more liberal than it was in North Carolina, which had a firmer definition, like a one drop rule was in North Carolina or something close to that. But that didn't exist in South Carolina. So Warwick could legally pass as white. In, in South Carolina. So that was why he went there. They talk about life there, his marriage and his children, but it's, it's a, just a brief chapter that introduces this judge. Um, chapter four, down the river. So Rena departs her home then. She talks to a family friend, Frank. Frank becomes an important character later in the novel. He seems to be deeply in love with Rena. Frank, however, speaks with a heavy accent and the 
the writing in dialect that Chestnut does so well in some of his other works, he does here with the character of Frank. He, he doesn't do it much. Um, Rena and Warwick are both pretty well educated. Rena a bit less. Warwick, of course, went off to school. There's certainly a connection in this novel between language and education. We see there's lots of examples of that. Now, on the train, they talk to white passengers, and Warwick presents himself as a gentleman from a wealthy family, and Rena gets a bit of education on the necessity to lie, to, and how to lie to white people to keep up this, this facade. And, you know, Warwick presents himself as having a rich and privileged background. He doesn't present himself just as a nobody. He, he does... And it, that's a bit strange because you'd think he that'd be easier to disprove if he you know it'd be easier if you just came from a poor family, um, and he he seems to have different stories about his background too. So he's a bit you know easy with with the with the lies here, which of course you understand he has to 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 live his entire life is based on not acknowledging his his racial background. I don't want to say identity because. You know, while Chestnut himself was very light-skinned and identified as a black person, Warwick doesn't seem to do that at all. Warwick seems to have some racial, racist assumptions of his own. We learn a bit of Warwick's plan with Rena, which base really is on that her she'll help with the family, help with the kid. That'll be why she's there. She'll go to a school for a while to get some refinement, and then eventually marry a gentleman. Chapter five is chapter five and six are a bit of a blast. Um, it's it's they're, they're kind of bizarre. So chapter five is called the tournament, and we see these southern whites, these rich southern whites, playing at chivalry and celebrating the lost claw, the lost cause, at the same time. And it's, it's almost comical. I I don't know if Chestnut was being serious when he wrote this, and maybe at the time this stuff didn't seem so funny. But reading it in early 21st century it seems like such a ridiculous joke these people dressing up with knights and they have these old civil war swords because they can't don't you know they don't have real medieval swords and they're doing this kind of fake jousting and things and they give these long pompous speeches about chivalry and honor and it's all mixed up also with kind of the it's the equivalent i guess of civil war reenactors who dress up in confederate uniforms or whatever um, they take it seriously, though, in the novel, and it's. But to me, it seems fairly ridiculous, and the language of it is all very pompous and um, a bit hilarious. But in terms of plot, the important thing that happens in this section is that Rena finds her place in Southern white society. She's sort of accepted. She's beautiful, so she's noted by other people. She goes by the name of Rowena Warwick, she, so she's going as her brother's sister. Now, it's at this tournament that Rena meets George Tryon. Warwick's very pleased with Rowena. I'll just call her Rowena now. Her performance. And and actually, she gets named the Queen of Love and Beauty at this, at this tournament. And that's the name of Chapter 6, the Queen of Love and Beauty. After Rena is declared the Queen of Love and Beauty by George Tyrone, being the most beautiful person there and the one he wants to court, she attends the tournament ball with him as her accompaniment. Again, Warwick is very pleased at how she's shaping up, that she seems to be fitting right into white society without any major suspicions by others. And of course, why would there be? I mean, there's no, 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 nothing obvious about her that would identify her as 
as lying about her background, and Warwick's already a fairly established member of the community. So in chapter seven, we get, it's called Mid New Surroundings. And this is basically an introduction to Warwick's home and his living arrangements. He's living with his son. He's got a nurse there who does an okay job, but he still, I mean, he, he kind of says bad things about her, but maybe that's partially to get Rena to be convinced that she needs to come there to help. The focus here is again on Warwick's pleasure at Rena's ability to adapt to her new circumstances. And, you know, everything is going good at this point in the story. Chapter 9, The Courtship. So things really move along at quite a rate here. Just a few pages after we're introduced to George uh, Trione, we get uh, plans for weddings. So yeah, he wastes very little time getting to the major plot of the story. The Courtship of Riona, Rowena, sorry, Rowena and, and Trione. She settles into the plan and after a few months, George visits. Their courtship is rather brief and within just a few pages, George declares his love for Rowena. Rowena is, of course, anxious about the nature of their love and immediately begins to dream that he can love her regardless of her racial background. She's already playing with this idea that maybe I can be honest with him. Quote, he says that he loves me. He does love me. Would he love me if he knew? She stood before an oval mirror brought from France by one of Warwick's wife's ancestors and regarded her image with coldly critical eye. She was as little vain as any of her sex who were endowed with beauty. She tried to place herself and thus passing upon her own claims to consideration and the hostile attitude of society toward her hidden disability. There was no mark upon her brow to brand her as less pure, less innocent, less desirable, less worthy to be loved than these proud women of the past who had admired themselves in this old mirror. And you see in that the language of that passage a little bit of how Chestnut plays with uh, race and how race, her racial identity is never fully discussed till halfway point through the novel. There's a chapter, that's really where I'll, I'll stop in this episode. And I'll look at the second half later on, where race is talked about openly. Here's it's the hidden disability and language like that he uses. Um, but Rowena decides, or Rena, whatever you want to name you want to use, she knows she really can't say anything because if she, this would risk Warwick's position and his whole life is based on on passing. So for her, it's just a romance, but for him, it's his whole life. So she she fears she can't really say anything. Chapter 9 is Doubts and Fears, and here's where Warwick and, and Rena really decide to test, to test the, you know, the case and see if what Trione would accept. And Warwick approaches Trione with some vague suggestions about his family, saying, you know, our background's not that good. And this is contrast to something he said before on the train to some white people where he said, our background is, is rich, and my father owned a bunch of slaves. Here he says, I had a very humble background. Basically, he's saying I'm from a poor family. He doesn't say white. He doesn't really talk about race at all, but he just says, if I was from a kind of disadvantaged background, would you care? Would you be less likely to, to love Rowena? And he jokes like, you know, I'm from a messed up family too. We all have skeletons in our closets a little bit. We can't, we got to move on with their life. So he kind of dismisses it. And obviously he's in love with, with Rowena. Well, they come to the conclusion that maybe Trione is not overly prejudiced, but they're still not sure how he feels on racial questions. Chapter 10 is called The Dream. Now, in a sense, the dream is simply the dream of being able to transcend her racial background and enjoy a life of happiness. But literally, the dream she has, and she has it three times, is much more bleak. She dreams about how she has abandoned her mother, and she dreams of her mother. And it's not surprising. Obviously, she must be thinking about her mother um, 
during this time in our life and, and a little bit of guilt is come to, is to be expected. Um, if the, the dream's a bit prophetic though, because she gets a letter from her mother early telling her that she's sick. Now she, Molly, Molly Walden is, is illiterate, but Warwick set up a means by which she could send letters. Basically she left her a bunch of envelopes and, you know, people could write letters for you if you couldn't read and write in those days. I guess they still could, um, but usually, you know, with higher literacy rates, you don't really need that profession anymore. I don't know what that music is. It's a the the neighborhood loudspeakers going off, playing a few notes of of a tune. I don't know. They're testing something, I guess. Anyway, she gets this letter. So Rena writes a letter to Trione, basically saying that she needs to go to her hometown for a while to care for her mom, and that and then she leaves. It's a very very short letter. We'll actually see it later on in the story. Um, so chapter eleven is called "A Letter and a Journey." Um, Trion is really nuts for Rowena and really can't face not seeing her. And he makes some excuse to go to Patesville, which is where uh, Rena's from, on a professional trip. And she was, he's going to visit a relative to a doctor named George. And she basically plan, he plans to track her down when he gets there. Warwick learns of this and he worries that their past might be revealed. But he, he flips a coin. It's a nice little scene where he flips a coin and he's going to, if it's like heads, he's going to say something, tails, he won't. And his son like grabs the coin before it can fall and we don't actually see the result, but it seems that because whatever the result was, he chose chooses not to really intervene. So he just lets the, the fate go, fates fall where they might. Um, chapter 12, uh, Trion goes to Patesville. That's the name of it. So first Trion goes to see Dr. Green, who was his cousin. This was part of his excuse for coming to Patesville in the first place. And while he's visiting Rena, so they're in like the back room and Rena comes in asking for a doctor to see her sick mother. Trion does not see her. They just hear and he doesn't, I guess he doesn't recognize the voice. Now later they see the judge, the same one who Warwick was with before, right? That, that same judge. And they talk about Rena and Dr. Green talks about what a shame it is that she must be black when she's so light-skinned. Now, again, Trion is in this conversation, but he doesn't know he's talking about Rowena, right? He's just talking about this light-skinned girl, so beautiful, but has to live as a black person. And, and he doesn't know they're talking about his fiancée. And here's what they say. It's on page 342 of the Library of America version. I don't know whether you've seen the daughter or not. I'm sure you haven't for the past year or so, for she's been away. But she's in town now, and by Jove, that girl's really beautiful. And I'm a judge of beauty. Do you remember my wife 30 years ago, Judge? Yeah, she was a handsome woman, Ed, replied the other judicially. If I had been 20 years younger, I should have cut you out. You mean you would have tried. But as I was saying, this girl's a beauty. I reckon we might guess where she got some of it, eh, Judge? Human nature is human nature. But it's a damn shame that a man should beget a child like that and leave it to live a life open for a Negro. If she had been born white, the young fellows would have been tumbling over one another to get at her. Her mother would have had to look after her pretty closely as things are if she if she had stayed here. But she disappeared mysteriously a year or two ago. She has been in the north, I'm told, passing for white. She'll probably marry a Yankee. So that's the conversation, the gossip about, about Rena. Of course, Trion doesn't know that Rena is Rowena yet. He'll know shortly. Chapter 13 in Injudious Payment. So Judge Strait now is, is, after this meeting, is going through these papers. When, and he goes on through these papers. And I think they're the papers that 
Trion left behind for him to look over, and this is why he was here on business. And he sees these, this note that Rowena gave him, and this proves to him that that this Rena has been posing as a white, and this Trion is the the one she's going to marry. He thinks about what to do, and he starts to think he's being punished for kind of his role in in creating this situation in the first place. And he finds a young black man named Billy, and he pays him some money to deliver a message to Molly Walden. And that message just says that she should keep Rena inside for a few days, but doesn't say why. The judge seems to feel he's being punished and has to do something. Now, unfortunately, Walden can't read the message, so she just puts it on the counter and says it must be on taxes, and she's going to have Frank read it to her later. Chapter 14, then, is about Frank. Frank, the old family friend, knows someone what's going on. He was at the tournament. Having followed Warwick and his sister to South Carolina, he seems to really love Rena. He sees Ty, uh, Trione and, like the judge, wants to protect his friend. This ends up being a disaster because as he runs out to try to stop their meeting, he doesn't take the time to read the letter to Ms. Walden. And Ms. Walden then never gets the message that he, he, she should be careful and not let Rena go outside. Um, chapter 15 is called Mine Own People. And after lunch with Dr. Green, Trion goes with him to the drugstore. And there, the quote-unquote black girl from before is pointed out to him. And it's revealed to George that Rowena is black. Rena sees her lover and faints. And at first, actually, George is kind of dumbfounded. He, he says, she looks so familiar. She looks just like Rowena. How could this be? And But she's black, right? And he really doesn't, it doesn't compute for a while in his head. And when she faints, so then he realizes that, yes, indeed, this is this is my fiance. So then we get chapter 16. The bottom falls out. This chapter consists of Trion's immediate response to being fooled. He's very upset over what he sees as a lie, but he is also overcome by racial prejudices. But at first, it's the initial feeling of just being betrayed. Quote, his emotions were varied and stormy. At first, he could see nothing but the fraud at which he had been made a victim. A Negro girl has been foisted upon him for a white woman, and he had almost committed the unpardonable sin against his race of marrying her. Such a step, he felt, would have been criminal at any time. It would also have been the most odious treachery, ob odious treachery of his epoch, when his people were being subjugated and humiliated by the northern invaders, who had preached Negro equality and abolished the wholesome laws decreeing the separation of the races. But no southerner who loved his poor, downtrodden country, or his race, the proud Anglo-Saxon race which treated the clear stream of its blood to the cavaliers of England, could tolerate the idea of even distant generations, that unsullied current could be polluted by the blood of slaves. Now, there are certainly hints before this that Trion is a racist. He's a white southerner uh, of an elite background, so it's, it certainly doesn't surprise us. But we didn't know how central racial identity was to his background. And this is going to be an issue that comes up a lot in the Morrow of Tradition, too, where you have characters who, you know, seem to have a perverse overemphasis will put too much emphasis on race and the color line and this is Chester, i think trying to point out the ridiculousness of of southern racist ideology but anyways george thinks about confronting rena and he even identifies her home the house behind the cedars but he doesn't and instead he's he just tries he's going to try to decide to do deal with this by letter and so this gets us through the first half of The House Behind the Cedars. The second half is going to be much more explicit on the way it examines race, and it really looks at the aftermath of the events set up in the first half. So that, that'll be all for today, except just mentioning a few themes that I think are really strongly stated in this book.
One, obviously, is the color line. I don't think I need to say too much more about that. This is an envelope passing, obviously. And about the burden of the color line and what it does to families, what it does to individuals, and how it interferes with people's happiness. Second, we got the, the theme of the lost cause, I think, especially in the tournament, but also in the resentment you see in characters like Trion towards black people. It's really rooted in the failure in the Civil War and this, this resentment over Reconstruction and resentment over the North and these kind of Yankee values are talked about a lot. And then you see this ridiculous, comical, fake chivalry being this play acting at war that was done in the tournament, which is all tied up in the lost cause and this belief that Southern gentlemen were fighting a war for honor and, you know, chivalry and all that nonsense. So next we have professionalism and whiteness. I think it's interesting that Warwick doesn't just pass as a white person. He, he passes as a white to become a lawyer. And this is something that's going to be an issue also in the marrow of tradition where you have a black doctor and a white doctor. And this there's interesting politics and events that happen in that novel. But Chestnut is talking in both of these novels a little bit about the professionalization uh, or whiteness as part of being a professional. And Warwick's very careful in establishing himself as a white person first and then establishing himself as a lawyer. But one seems to derive from the other. And then, well, I guess part of the point here, too, is to show that Warwick is talented and able to do this, right? That's, that's why he puts the Black Doctor in the other, on the other novel as well. There, it's explicitly stated that he's as good a surgeon as anyone else. But we'll talk about that when we get to the marrow of tradition. But it's, I think Chestnut's trying to show that black people don't aren't just doomed to be the working poor, right? They have these skills. And this way, he's very much like W.E.B. Du Bois, who talks about this talented 10th. And then we have a little bit here about women's role, um, the importance of marriage to women. Uh, a lot of Miss Walden's problems come from the fact that she couldn't marry because of events that will be described later on. But basically, it's the birth of her children from a white man is what really interferes with her life. Um, the mother as the victim of, of race uh, and, the, and the color line as, you know, children being taken away from her. In this sense, she's much as much a victim as... Sis Becky and the Conjure Woman. I mean, maybe Sis Becky had it worse, but certainly, but in the sense that in both cases, race and the violence of, of racism and, and the legacy of slavery or slavery itself, breaking up, taking away children from their, from their families. And of course, Rowena's uplift is all tied up into her marriage. And she's really invested in this idea of marrying. She's not going to become a professional, right? So there's some gender politics that could be dissected and talked about in this novel as well. So that'll do it for the first half of The House Behind the Cedars. I'll have to say this was, when I first picked up Chestnut, I, I never really knew this book, this Library of America version of Chestnut's writing. I didn't really know him. I, I think I probably heard the name before, but I, it didn't register. But The House Behind the Cedars was a, a name I was familiar with. And, you know, that was the one I heard of before. I think I must have read it about it in a textbook or something. So this, I was excited to read it. Um, it's not my favorite work in this collection, but it, I think it's one of those more famous works, certainly. So it's, but it's a good one. I, I, I'm really enjoying it. So anyways, thanks again for listening. If you have your own, your own comments about the color line, the legacy of Reconstruction, the legacy of slavery, the white Southern hair-invoked democracy, uh, the Black South after the Civil War, 
my own, you know, you got questions or comments that want my own commentary on this novel, please leave them below and I'll, I'll try to respond. Or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Uh, listen to other stuff I have on this, this podcast. I've been looking at a lot of American writers over the past year or so. So again, thank you so much for listening and supporting this, this podcast. And I'll be back next time with the second half of The House Behind the Cedars. Thank you.